Scotland's history is ghoulish, ghastly, and at times downright gruesome. Who wouldn't want to hear more about it? If you're interested in learning more about Scotland's history, legends, and ghost stories, then the Generally Spooky podcast is for you. My name is Ailey, researcher, storyteller, and believer in ghosts. And my name is Kieran. I'm chief listener, provider of jokes, and Ailey's husband. And we are the co-hosts of the Generally Spooky podcast. Join us as we discuss things like the Loch Ness Monster, the Mackenzie Poltergeist, the Battle of Culloden, and so much more. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can also find us for free on YouTube and over at our website, generallyspooky.com. We'll see you there. See you there. Do not attempt to adjust the settings on your device. The sounds you hear are not hallucinations. You have crossed into the domain of a traveler that has a taste for telling tales about the macabre, the strange, the unusual, and the morbid. Don't be shy. Step inside and take a seat by the fire and enjoy your visit into the world that is the Nightcap Nebula. My friends, and welcome to the Nightcap Nebula podcast, where nothing is taboo or wicked, and the topics are always eerie and intriguing. It's been a while, and this humble storyteller has been away on a galactic cruise far past your Oort cloud, into uncharted space, gazing into the deep darkness of universal wonder. But I do admit that I have missed my favorite place dearly, for it holds so many unknowns that it takes many sittings to tell all the tales of it. So, for that reason, I've decided to move my efforts on a more permanent basis to your home, dear listeners, Planet Earth. When you all first joined me by the fire, I shared some of the most vile aspects and examples of this floating chaotic blue ball, but sometimes beyond the evil lurks so much more dazzling wonder that it would be a shame to gloss over it and not share what I have learned. Not everything is woe, death, and destruction, however. Mystery and anomalies have their own set of horrors, creepiness, and enthrallment. It is for this reason that I make a combined effort to provide a different look into the depths of the darkest holes where your imagination will surely run wild with insanity. This will be a two-parter, starting with stories of the missing and all but forgotten because I couldn't possibly cover all of these in one go. So, grab a box of your favorite candy, a bag of popcorn, a good pillow, and join me once more by the gentle flame as I guide you through what is the top 10 of Earth's unbelievably unreal and unsolved. You would think by now that I've seen just about everything in the realm of ridiculous and outlandish, but I assure you, not much compares to this next occurrence that seems more like a fresh hellscape for those involved. And the most unnerving part? It is largely forgotten by everyone including those in the medical field, almost as if they wish it never happened. But it did. In 1917, a neurologist from Vienna named Konstantin von Ekonomo released a paper after witnessing an illness that was beginning to affect more and more people. While treating patients diagnosed with meningitis, multiple sclerosis, and delirium in a psychiatric neurological clinic, he quickly realized all of their symptoms didn't exactly match their diagnosis. In particular, the patients presented with extreme sluggishness, and some were completely immobile but alive, as if they were living statues. After the deaths of some patients, Dr. Arconomo noticed an inflammation of the patient's brains later on, calling the disease encephalitis lethargica, which translates to sleeping sickness. The disease would eventually spread throughout Europe with no cure or full understanding of its cause, and by 1919, the disease had spread all around the world. Millions of people began to experience symptoms such as light fevers, headaches, blurred vision, upper body weakness, and muscular pains finally evolving into slowed thinking, slowed movements, 
double vision, loss of interest in life, delirium, and paralysis. For some, all the symptoms progressed gradually, but for others, for whatever reason, advanced to sudden paralysis without warning. People would be at home, with everything seeming normal, when their movements began to slow until they fully stopped and were unable to move. It didn't matter what position they were in or what they were doing. Encephalitis lethargica could strike without warning as if they were frozen in time. When they were once again able to move, some stated they were fully aware of what was going on, saying it was as if they were a force holding them still or their brains were preventing them from moving. When some victims did wake up, some remained only to die a few weeks later. The disease affected over 5 million people of all ages all around the world over the course of the next 10 years. Then, in 1926, encephalitis lethargica disappeared, with no known cause for its beginning or end. But in that time, over 1.6 million of those affected died, many from respiratory failure, with less than a million making full recoveries. The rest experienced symptoms throughout their lives, with some displaying impulsive behaviors to the point where they were described as psychopathic. Soon they began to display symptoms similar to Parkinson's disease such as tremors, stiffness, or slowed movement regardless of their age. Eventually, many became catatonic or fell into comas, their loved ones fearing they would stay in this state for the rest of their lives. It wasn't until the late 1960s, 40 years after the outbreak ended, that neurologist Oliver Sacks decided to try a newly invented drug called L-DOPA. This drug increased the dopamine levels in a patient's brain and had been shown effective in those suffering from Parkinson's disease, which was known to deteriorate a part of the brainstem called the substantia nigra, where dopamine affects the motivation of movement. Since the L-DOPA had proven useful in those cases and knowing movement was being limited in encephalitis, he believed the drug could help. The drug proved to be a success and patients began to wake up for the first time in decades. Many reported not being aware of anything, but others reported being awake throughout their entire catatonic state with varying degrees of memories. However, the celebrations were short-lived. Many patients began experiencing side effects from L-DOPA, such as hallucinations and aggressive behavior. And soon the drug stopped working, no matter what dosage the patients were administered, with almost all patients deteriorating back to their previous catatonic states. Some were angry to have been awake for such a short duration, while others were happy to have experienced life one last time. Oliver Sacks' medical experiences and memoirs about his research can be read about in his book Awakenings, and a portrayal of him and his experiences with said breakthrough can be seen in the movie of the same name. Today, it is still not known what caused the encephalitis lethargic outbreak, but the theory is that it was largely overshadowed by the Spanish flu from 1918 to 1920, which killed upwards of 100 million people, and some scientists believe the pandemic may have actually played a role in creating a lower resistance to encephalitis lethargica, especially since some of the early symptoms of the disease mirror that of said flu. Because of this, virologist John Oxford believed the disease could return at any time, and in 1993, he was proven right when a patient by the name of Becky Howells was diagnosed with it, and since then, Oxford has compiled at least 20 other cases. With the work of others, he believes he discovered the cause of which is a severe immune response to a streptococcus-like bacteria called Diplococcus. While this may be the culprit, there is still much more research to do in order to narrow it down. Peace of mind is a beautiful thing in these trying times, but living in a prison of one's own body, observing those around you, while your inner voice cries out in silence, fighting amongst a futile seclusion, seems like a cruel embrace of fate that no one should ever endure. Attempted murder on a ghost, cursed paintings burning houses down, and lighthouse keepers disappearing without a trace. The world is filled with astonishing stories that will make you go and shrug, saying, well, I don't know what's going on here, but it is certainly strange. My podcast, Certainly Strange, is a collection of these bizarre tales. Each episode I tell a separate story and share my own unfiltered opinions and theories about it. If this sounds interesting to you, come and join me on this journey through the strangest parts of our history.
Every so often, Mother Nature decides to throw humans a curveball in the form of either a natural disaster, solar flares, electromagnetic interference, or some other terrestrial event that seems to defy reasoning. Then there are things that may never have a cause or even a half-hearted explanation. In 2016, what started off as a few freak incidents in Cuba has spread to other parts of the globe and is showing no signs of stopping. The mystery began at the U.S. Embassy in Havana when personnel started developing insomnia, dizziness, restlessness, and pounding headaches after claiming to hear strange loud noises that seemed to place pressure directly in the center of their heads. After some investigating, there was nothing found and dozens of diplomats were withdrawn from the embassy raising lots of international tension. To make matters worse, that same month, various diplomats were flown out of the U.S. Embassy in Guangzhou, China, after they reported the same debilitating symptoms in Havana. After some time had passed, there were still no answers as to why these individuals were struck with such an odd ailment, but neuroscientists and psychologists have a few weak but plausible theories. Being in a position of government can be quite cumbersome and tedious, while others can be taxing and overwhelming. The first theory is that they were overcome with stress that created a psychosomatic response in the cerebral cortex that manifested into something on par with a bad migraine mixed with symptoms of the common cold. Since not all the dignitaries were affected, this seemed to be the best bet as to why some fell ill and others didn't. But a few researchers are finding hints of a physical cause. In February, a team at the University of Pennsylvania described neurological deficits in the sufferers. In unpublished results, Michael Hoffer, an ontolarinologist at the University of Miami in Florida, and his colleagues described a unique vestibular and cognitive disorder in the two dozen evacuated from Havana with their theory a bit on the science fiction side an energy device that triggers inner ear damage. The index case, as Hoffer calls the first report, complained to the embassy doctor of ear pain, tinnitus, vertigo, and feeling cognitively not perfect. The agent said he had heard a really odd, loud noise that seemed to follow him in the room, says Hoffer, who examined him in February. When he opened the front door, the sound went away. Other U.S. personnel reported similar symptoms. At the end of 2017, then-Ambassador Jeffrey De Laurentiis summoned personnel with security clearances, about 30 in all, for a classified briefing in a special installation in the embassy, a steel conics box suspended on pylons that shielded from surveillance. The working hypothesis, the diplomat says, was the victims were being targeted by long-range acoustic devices. Embassy security officers advised their colleagues to record harassing sounds and report any symptoms. In April 2017, the embassy clued in all members of its diplomatic corps and advised people to sleep in the middle of a room away from windows. Some of those with children became paranoid as they were told parameters to avoid what was potentially an energy attack. Hoffer and his team tried different methods to diagnose what was going on and a few seemed quite desperate. In one test, the patient wears goggles that protect a moving field of light that points while a camera observes eye movements. In healthy subjects, the eyes reflexively track the lights. People with a head injury are often unable to focus on them at all. The goggles can also perform other eye movement tests sensitive to concussions. Several dozen embassy members, including those afflicted, were tested and about half flunked a critical eye movement test and more than two dozen reported dizziness or vertigo. In those individuals, further tests implicated damage to the ear's ontolith organs, the utricle and the saccule, key to sensing gravity. After these were conducted, Hoffer made the claim that this was prima facie evidence that this is not some made-up disease. There were agreements and detracting on both sides, but one thing they all seemed to agree on is that this was not some psychosocial or hallucination of the mind brought on by stress. Further analysis was done, and experts started looking into the medical histories of each patient, trying to find some pre-existing condition that would connect, but there was nothing definitive found only that one had experienced a loud IED blast while stationed in Afghanistan. The following year revealed that the FBI found no evidence for an attack with powerful energy beams, but the Department of Defense is giving the possibility a closer look. 
U.S. Navy acoustic expert Kirk Yakanikos, who runs the noise-induced hearing loss program at the Office of Naval Research in Arlington, Virginia, thinks an energy weapon is a possibility, although it would have to have been tight-beamed and high-frequency. One such candidate of technology, he says, is so-called hypersonic sound generated by the interference of ultrasonic waves, which the Navy has evaluated as a means of communicating on deafening aircraft carrier decks. After these findings, physical exams were performed as some subjects were frightened that this event may lead to some future abnormalities, but all results came back within normal parameters. As frustration mounted, the more simple conclusions started to emerge again, this time in the form of a mass psychogenic illness. While this is nothing new, it couldn't explain all the symptoms. A panel of Cuban scientists that evaluated U.S. evidence and gathered its own data concluded in December 2017 that U.S. recordings of a grating, supposedly unnatural sound matched the chirping of the Jamaican field cricket, a notoriously noisy insect that's common in Cuba. The index diplomat insisted that people's state of mind determined whether they developed symptoms. He further stated that he believes that none of these involved, himself included believed that they were under any risk or thought they were victims of anything. He did, however, mention in one of his interviews that late one night he heard a mysterious sound while standing in the atrium of his house that was so loud and metallic that his brain literally hurt. He called the embassy security officer who came over and recorded the sound. The housekeeper confirmed that it was simply a group of Jamaican crickets and the noises they make tend to drive those not used to it a little crazy. One other diplomat concurred with this, but not all, and soon a divide was created between the so-called true believers and the skeptical camp. Tired of the squabbling, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo formed a task force in June 2018 to get to the bottom of this once and for all. But as of today, the U.S. intelligence community cannot link any cases of this Havana syndrome to a foreign adversary, ruling it unlikely that the unexplained illness was the result of a targeted campaign by an enemy of the U.S., and the only finding they have concluded on thus far has been that a strong pulse of electromagnetic discharge of unknown origin seemed to hit these installations particularly hard for whatever reason, and the origin of where and why will most likely be shrouded in mystique. Living under the human condition is quite complicated, and oftentimes angering as even the brightest minds on Earth struggle to figure out why their brains and body seem to malfunction without warning and under very odd situations. But let this be a reminder to you all that nothing in life is ever certain. Most of you heard of the Zodiac Killer, the son of Sam, and their ominous letters to taunting the authorities regarding their murders. It took Codebreakers months to figure out the Zodiac symbology with no success, until the teacher and her husband unscrambled them while the son of Sam simply got too arrogant, leaving clues to who he was. This next entry follows similar insane guidelines into the mind of a madman. It all began with threatening letters written to its inhabitants by a person with a vendetta. In the 1970s, the day started innocently enough for commuters and families in Circleville, Ohio. Breakfast, school, maybe some coffee, and awful radio shows talking about the ongoing gas shortage. For some, however, the day started off in fear and violence. Upon opening their mailboxes, recipients were greeted with an unmarked envelope with letters that read, quote, You have been watched, failure to comply, and you shall suffer. No one can help. No one can protect you. Obey. Obey. I don't expect anyone to know anything about this Nowheresville, but I will lay it out for you. Circleville is known for being a very peaceful town hosting an annual pumpkin show. And that's it. If you're expecting more, sorry to disappoint you. The strange thing is that because this is such an innocuous location, it makes the letters that much more frightening, with the sender accusing the recipients of embezzlement, fraud, affairs, domestic violence, and even murder. A target of more than one of these letters was school bus driver Mary Gillespie, who was accused of having an affair with the superintendent, Gordon Massey. One letter regarding the affair reads as follows. Lady, this is your last chance to report him. I know you are a pig and will approve it and shame you out of Ohio. 
A pig sneaks around and meets other women's husbands behind their backs, causes families and homes and marriages to suffer. Her husband, Ronald Gillespie, began to receive threats as well, with one letter goading him to catch them and kill them. Even if Ronald believed this sick person's allegations or had a chance to confront his wife, things turned deadly as he received a phone call from the writer in August of 77 when Mary was on her way to Florida. The caller declared he was observing his house and that he knew what Ron's truck looked like. Furious, Ron told his family that he thought he recognized the caller's voice and raced out the door with the intention of confronting him bringing a gun. Tragically, on the way there, he was killed when he crashed into a tree. A gun that had been fired once was found under his body, raising the question if he had been firing at the letter writer and had been defending himself with the writer gaining the upper hand. The thing is, Ron's BAC was twice the legal limit and no shell casing was found at the scene. With this seemingly clear-cut evidence, the coroner ruled Gillespie's death in an accident, but others suspected he was murdered. One person of interest, who wasn't named, was hooked up to a polygraph but passed. Ironically, after his husband's highly questionable death, she began seeing Gordon Massey, but still denied affair allegations. This only seemed to stoke the ire of the mystery author, and the threats increased in the worst possible way. On February 7th, 1983, Mary was driving on her bus route, ordinary day, ordinary pickups. On an intersection, she saw what appeared to be an obscene sign saying nasty, vile things about her 13-year-old daughter. She tried to pull the sign down, but she noticed it was rigged with twine in a box. Being extra cautious, she took the box home and opened it up, and her heart stopped. Inside was a gun, ready to go off. Realizing this was a booby trap meant for her, she took the box to the police. Investigators at Ohio's Bureau of Criminal Investigation uncovered the gun's serial number, despite being mostly filed off, and traced it back to Paul Fleshauer, which was shocking since he was Mary and Ron's brother-in-law, and was also one of the biggest advocates for Ron believing that he was murdered, pushing authorities to take a closer look at the case. When investigators interviewed Paul Fleshauer's estranged wife, she claimed he was also the Circleville letter writer. Although Fleshauer insisted he had nothing to do with the letters or the booby trap, and having only the gun to go on with no fingerprints or real motive, he was arrested and tried for attempted murder. After being released on $50,000 bond, Fleshauer voluntarily checked himself into the mental health center at Riverside Hospital because he wanted to be examined and possibly to help with a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, which he later dropped. A co-worker named Wesley Wells and Anheuser-Busch, where Fleshauer worked, testified that Fleshauer had purchased the gun from him for $35, while personnel records showed that Fleshauer had taken a day off from work on February 7th, the same day Mary discovered the booby trap. Even more compelling was the fact that handwriting samples taken from Fleshauer employment files were, according to handwriting experts, a match for 391 of the letters and 103 postcards sent to the Gillespies and other local residents receiving letters totaling to 494 of the thousand sent out to Circleville residents. At his trial, Paul Fleshauer was never charged with writing the letters, but the judge allowed 39 of them as evidence. It was a break for the prosecution who claimed the writing on the booby trap shared similarities to those letters. Fleshauer was convicted of attempted murder, and everyone presumed the letter writer was now behind bars, but the letters never stopped, and he couldn't have written them since he was barred from having access to writing tools or paper of any kind while incarcerated. Not to mention, he received a letter while in prison, which read, Now, when are you going to believe you are getting out of there? I told you two years ago. When we set them up, they stay set up. Don't you listen at all. There was one lead that police were criticized for failing to follow up on. According to another bus driver working the day Mary discovered the booby trap, a yellow El Camino was parked at the intersection, and a man who looked nothing like Fleshauer was standing nearby pretending to urinate. He was never identified. Since then, Fleshauer remains the prime suspect as no new evidence has come to light since the letters ceased in 1994, after nearly 20 years when the first letter was sent and after Fleshauer was released from prison. Over the years, Fleshauer still maintained his innocence until his death in 2012. If it was Fleshauer, he certainly abandoned attempting to write these letters while locked up. 
If there were copycats or accomplices, they too stopped. Feshauer stated to FBI profiler Mary O'Toole, If a crime continues on and you have someone in custody for a long period of time, you have to say, somebody else is sending these letters. They're not happening by magic. Somebody else is writing the letters. In 2021, the show 48 Hours had forensic document analyzer Beverly East examine each and every aspect of the writing to confirm or deny that these were written by Fleshauer or someone else. She noted that the fact that the G's looked like sixes were unique, and some numbers were also written in a way that would be hard for anyone else to replicate. She deduced that she knows, with 100% accuracy, that the author of the Circleville letters is Freshour. Analysts also identified Freshour's fingerprints on some of the letters that were sent while he was in prison, a seeming contradiction no one seems able to explain. As far as the police are concerned, the case remains closed. With a town that harbors so many backroom deals, tight-knit groups, and troubling skeletons lurking in all those luxurious walk-in closets, it should come as no surprise that all the social sewage was bound to poison the inhabitants sooner or later. Whether or not the individual responsible was really guilty, the dirty laundry that was aired out will surely get another pile to deal with sooner or later that may hold repercussions much worse than a violent Dear John letter. After seeing how large Earth truly is, I can understand the phrase needle in a haystack a lot better, but based on how much has been discovered since you humans could navigate land, air, and sea, especially with GPS and cell phones, the probability of someone getting lost these days drops to a small percentage. However, this next entry takes place before technology made it easier to pin down individuals who strayed from the beaten path, those who vanished into thin air, and others that met a demise with no trace to be found. It was a beautiful early Christmas morning in Fayetteville, West Virginia in 1945, and the Sauter family were tucked away safe in their homes, and would have stayed that way if not for a sudden fire engulfing their home in a horrid inferno. The Sauter family consisted of nine children and their parents, George and Jenny. Their only offspring not in the house was their oldest son, Joseph, who was overseas fighting in World War II. George Sauter immigrated to the United States from Sardinia, Italy in 1908 when he was 13 years old. He soon found work on the Pennsylvania railroads carrying water and supplies to the workers. After a few years, he moved to Smithers, West Virginia, where he first worked as a driver and then launched his own trucking company, hauling dirt, freight, and coal. It was there that he met Jenny Capriani, who immigrated from Italy when she was three. The couple soon married and had ten children between 1923 and 1943, later moving to Fayetteville, West Virginia. The family moved into a two-story wood frame house about two miles north of town and fit right in since the Appalachian town had an active Italian immigrant community. George's business prospered, and they became one of the most respected middle-class families around. However, George was an outspoken man with strong opinions that often alienated some people. One such opinion was a strong opposition to Italian dictator Benito Mussolini, which led to arguments with other immigrant community members creating tension and animosity. It is heavily speculated that these exchanges with townsfolk culminated to what happened that dreadful morning. Around 12.30 a.m. on Christmas Day, the phone rang and Jenny went downstairs to answer it. On the other end of the line was a woman's voice that she did not recognize that was asking for someone who didn't reside in the home. Jenny informed the caller she had reached the wrong number and hung up. At that time, she noticed the lights were still on and the curtains were not drawn downstairs. Her daughter Marion had fallen asleep on the living room couch, and Jenny assumed the other children who had stayed up had returned to the attic where they slept. After turning out the lights and closing the curtains, she returned to bed. However, Jenny was again awakened at 1am when she heard an object hitting the roof before rolling off. Hearing nothing more, she again went back to sleep. Another half hour later, she woke up again when she smelled smoke and woke her husband. When they both came downstairs, the hallway was filled with smoke and the stairway leading to the children's bedrooms was filled with flames. The fire appeared to be coming from a fuse box and telephone line in the room George used as an office. 
The couple shouted up the stairs for everyone to get out of the house quickly, and the family fled. George, Jenny, their 23-year-old John, 16-year-old George Jr., 17-year-old daughter Mario, and 2-year-old Sylvia made it safely outside. However, their sons, 14-year-old Maurice, and 9-year-old Louis, and daughters 12-year-old Martha, 8-year-old Jenny, and 5-year-old Betty, who slept in two upstairs bedrooms, were not there. Blocked from going back into the house, George raced to the side of the building where there is always a ladder to get to the upstairs windows, but became frozen in bewilderment when he saw that the ladder was missing. He then ran to one of his trucks, thinking he could move it and stand on the roof of it to help the children out the window, but it wouldn't start. Unbelievably, the second truck also wouldn't start. Barefoot, he climbed the wall and broke an attic window, cutting his arm badly. Making one last attempt, he tried to scoop water from a rain barrel, but found it was frozen solid. By this time, the house was engulfed in flames, and they could only watch in horror as it burned to the ground, presumably with the other children inside. Within the following hours, nothing remained except rubble, charred wood, and the basement. Their daughter Marion had run to a neighbor's home to call the Fayetteville Fire Department, but got no response. Another neighbor also tried to call from a nearby tavern, but again, no operator responded. The neighbor then drove into town and tracked down the fire chief, and although the fire department was only two and a half miles away, the crew didn't arrive until 8am, and by then, nothing remained. Afterward, the police and firemen conducted a brief investigation, and by 10 a.m., Morris told the Sodders that they had not found any bones and could not do much more. The local coroner convened an inquest, and it was determined that the five children had undoubtedly perished in the fire, even though no human remains were found. Thought to have been caused by faulty wiring, it is believed the fire had been hot enough to cremate the bodies completely. Among the jurors was the man who had threatened George that his house would be burned down and his children destroyed in retribution for his anti-Mussolini remarks. Before the end of the year, the coroner issued five death certificates attributing the cause to fire or suffocation. The Sodders gradually began to rebuild their lives. George covered the basement with five feet of dirt and converted the site into a memorial garden for their lost children. Jenny carefully tended the garden for the rest of her life, even though she began to believe that the children they were memorializing might be alive somewhere. Even in their sorrow, they began to question all the official findings about the fire. They were not satisfied with the determinations made by local authorities due to the many unanswered questions and the unusual circumstances that occurred before and during the fire. For example, in the fall of 1945, a stranger appeared at the home asking about hauling work. Wandering to the back of the house, he pointed to two separate fuse boxes, commenting, this is going to cause a fire someday. George thought this was a strange comment, especially since he had just had the wiring checked by the local power company claiming that it was in good working order. Another strange occurrence is a salesman came by and offered to sell the family life insurance. When George refused, he became angry, saying that his children would be destroyed and their house would go up in flames. Being Italian, the salesman said his remarks were mostly due to George's nasty comments about Mussolini. There were other odd and troubling occurrences, such as strange vehicles surveilling the children and suspicious findings about the wiring to theories that the Sicilian Mafia had abducted the missing children before the arson, which is what they suspect happened to their house. All manner of way too coincidental issues with the fire arose and got to the point where the Sodders tried to involve the FBI in 1947. The family wrote director J. Edgar Hoover and unfortunately he responded by saying, although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come within the investigative jurisdiction of this bureau. He added, however, that if the local authorities requested the Bureau's assistance, he would direct agents to assist, but the Fayetteville Police and Fire Departments declined to do so. With so many unanswered questions and even less authority cooperation, the Sodders hired private investigator C.C. Tinsley from the nearby town of Gawley Bridge. Tinsley learned that the insurance salesman who had threatened them with a fire a year before over George's anti-Mussolini sediments had been on the coroner's jury that ruled the fire an accident and told this to the Sodders. He also learned of rumors about Fayetteville that despite his report to the Sodders that no remains had been found in the ashes, Morris had found a heart, which he later packed into a metal box and secretly buried. 
Morris had confessed this to a local minister, who confirmed it to George. When George and Tinsley confronted Morris with this news, Morris agreed to show the two where he had buried the metal box, and they dug it up. However, when a local funeral director examined the box's contents, it was found that it contained beef liver that had never been exposed to fire. Morris would later admit that the box had not come from the fire, but he had placed it there hoping that the solders would find it and be satisfied that the missing children had died in the fire. In 1949, after becoming frustrated and desperate, George managed to persuade Oscar Hunter, a Washington, D.C. pathologist, to supervise a new search through the dirt at the house site. The findings were promising to say the least, unearthing artifacts including a dictionary belonging to the children and some coins. Several small bone fragments were also discovered and determined to have been human vertebrae and were sent to Marshall T. Newman, a specialist in the Smithsonian Institution, where they were confirmed to be lumbar vertebrae, all from the same person. He also estimated that the victim's age would have been between 16 and 22, which made it not likely to be from any of the five missing children, since the oldest, Maurice, had been 14 at the time. Newman also added that the bone showed no sign of exposure to flame, Later, investigator Tinsley supposedly confirmed that the bone fragments had come from a cemetery in nearby Mount Hope, but could not explain why they had been taken from there or how they came to be at the fire site. The investigation and its findings attracted national attention, and the West Virginia legislature held two hearings on the case in 1950. Afterward, Governor Oki L. Paterson and State Police Superintendent W.E. Burchett told the Sodders the case was hopeless and closed it at the state level. The FBI decided it had jurisdiction as a possible interstate kidnapping, but dropped the case after two years of getting nowhere with leads. The Sodders did not give up hope though, printing flyers with the children's pictures and offering a $5,000 reward for any information soon doubling the amount to $10,000. They even put up a billboard in 1952 at the site of the house and another along US Route 60 near Anstead, which had the most success being to supposed sightings of the children. One was from Ida Crutchfield, who ran a hotel in Charleston. She claimed to have seen the children approximately a week after they disappeared, and said the children had come in around midnight with two men and two women who looked Italian. She said that when she tried to address the children, one of the men looked at her in a hostile manner before turning around and speaking rapidly in Italian. Their group left early the following day. As interesting as the story was, investigators did not find her story to be credible. Facing more and more dead ends, George followed up on many leads in person. When a woman from St. Louis, Missouri claimed that Martha was being held in a convent there, he traveled to the city only to be disappointed that the information was false. He also followed up with a bar patron in Texas who claimed to have overheard two other people making incriminating statements about a fire that happened on Christmas Eve in West Virginia some years before. When George heard one of Jenny's relatives in Florida look similar to his, the relative had to prove the children were his own before George was satisfied. He also followed up on a trip from Houston that two of his sons were in Texas, but none of these proved significant, only adding to his dismay. Then, in 1968, 20 years after the fire, Jenny received an envelope in the mail from Central City, Kentucky. There was no return address, just the postmark. Inside was a photograph of a young man. On the back was written, Louis Sauter, I love brother Frankie. Little boys, A90132. Though authorities believed it to be some cruel hoax, George and Jenny thought the photograph looked exactly how Louis would have looked as an adult and was credible evidence that at least Louis was alive. Hopeful, they once again hired a private investigator to go to Central City, Kentucky to track down the photo's sender or the young man himself, but the investigator fled West Virginia with his fee and was never heard from again. Still hopeful, they added the new picture to the billboard. Failing in health, George Sauter died the following year in 1969. Jenny and the surviving children, except John who accepted things as they are, continued to search for answers. For the remainder of her days, Jenny wore black in mourning and tended to the memorial garden upon which her house once stood. After Jenny died in 1989, the family finally took down the weathered billboards, but continued to publicize the case and inquire about new leads. With a new generation of children from the surviving children still helping to seek answers, most sleuths and authors that have written books about the tragedy have concluded that even if the children were taken and somehow survived, there is a very slim chance that they would be alive today. And even some believe 
that those children did indeed perish in the house fire. With so many falsities, brick walls, loose ends, and shoddy detective work on the town's part, this remains an unsolved mystery and will most likely stay that way. It's one thing to lose a child, but the unending living hell of not knowing their fate is something that must be absolutely crippling. I just hope that whatever befell these children ended up as an unexpected happy ending, where they lived their lives in secret and, if that is not the case, that they did not suffer at the hands of their captors, or something far, far worse. When people go missing, that is scary and unnerving enough. But what about when entire aircrafts, vehicles, or even ships seem to dissipate into thin air? Earth has had its share of various naval crews completely disappear, and lots of curious parties have been searching for clues on their whereabouts for decades. But I believe I've saved the best for last in regards to these types of peculiar happenings, and it all starts aboard a British brig in the late 19th century called the Mary Celeste. The crew of the British brig De Gracia was about 400 miles east of the Azores on December 5th, 1872, when they spotted a ship about six miles out that looked adrift and Captain David Morehouse was visibly shaken when he discovered that it was the Mary Celeste, which had left New York City eight days before him and should have already arrived at Genoa, Italy. He immediately changed course to offer aid to the lost vessel. When the boarding party examined the ship, nothing looked immediately out of place at least at first. Once aboard, the crew found that the ropes and sails looked disheveled and frayed, some hatches were open, and the captain's compass was broken. Below decks, the ship's charts had been tossed around, and the crewmen's belongings were still in their quarters. One of the strangest things was the ship's only lifeboat was missing, and one of the two bilge pumps had been disassembled, causing three and a half feet of water to build up in the hull, but the cargo of barrels of industrial alcohol was intact. The six-month supply of food and water was also accounted for. Not a soul was found. Nothing further was discovered. No blood, no struggle, no signs of the crew being shanghaied, and no major damage to the ship to suggest an attack of any sort. With nothing to draw on, Morehouse left Devoe, second mate John Wright, and a few other sailors to take the ship as salvage under maritime law. They sailed some 800 miles and reported their findings once they reached their destination in Gibraltar. Both ships arrived on December 12th, with the Mary Celeste encountering fog arriving on the following morning. She was immediately impounded by the Vice Admiralty Court to prepare for salvage hearings. A British Vice Admiralty Court convened to determine whether the De Gracia crew were entitled to payment from the ship's insurers, but the Attorney General in charge of the inquiry, Frederick Sollyflood, suspected mischief and investigated accordingly. After more than three months, the court found no evidence of foul play and, eventually, the salvagers received a payment, but only one-sixth of the $46,000 for which the ship and its cargo had been insured, suggesting that the authorities were not entirely convinced of the de Grasha's crew's innocence. Nevertheless, no hard evidence ever emerged to convict them of piracy or any other egregious crimes. So, what really happened to the ten people who had sailed aboard the Mary Celeste? As more time passed, it became a bigger issue with a lack of hard facts that has only spurred speculation as to what may have taken place. Theories have ranged from mutiny and pirates to sea monsters, rogue waves, killer waterspouts, and even something as outlandish as Cthulhu. Arthur Conan Doyle's 1884 short story based on the case posited a capture by a vengeful ex-slave, a 1935 movie featuring Bela Lugosi as a homicidal sailor. Now, a new investigation that draws on modern maritime technology and newly discovered documents may have pieced together the most likely scenario. Author Conan Doyle published J. Habakkuk Jeffson's statement in 1884, reviving the story of the Mary Celeste in his sensationalistic account, which set off waves of theories about the ship's fate. Even Attorney General Sully Flood revisited the case, writing summaries of his interviews and notes, but the mystery remained unsolved. In 2002, the trail was picked back up by investigative reporter Anna McGregor in an effort to debunk a lot of the nonsense that was emerged over the years and narrow down more plausible explanations. 
She made four documentaries, including one on the Hindenburg disaster that includes modern forensic analysis. In her movie on the ship called The True Story of the Mary Celeste, she began by asking what didn't happen. Speculation concerning sea monsters was easy to dismiss, and the ship's condition and cargo, mostly unscathed, seems to rule out pirates. One interesting theory that goes back to the 19th century is that crew members drank the alcohol on board and mutinied, but after interviewing crewmen's descendants, she deemed that scenario unlikely. Another theory assumed that alcohol vapors expanded in the Azores' heat and blew off the main hatch, prompting those aboard to fear an imminent explosion. But McGregor notes that the boarding party found the main hatch secured and did not report smelling any fumes. It was noted that 9 of the 1,701 barrels in the hold were empty, but the empty 9 had been recorded as being made of red oak, not white oak like the others, and red oak is known to be more porous wood which is more susceptible to leaking. There was an unconfirmed story regarding a member of the Murray Celeste that went crazy and somehow killed all the crew members on board, and even a movie was made about it starring Bela Lugosi as the unnamed homicidal sailor called The Mystery of the Mary Celeste, sometimes referred to as Phantom Ship. From McGregor's notes, this is mired in many inaccuracies and may have been drawn from two German crewmen, brothers Volkert and Boy Lorenzen, who fell under suspicion because none of their personal possessions were found on the abandoned ship. But a Lorenzen descendant told McGregor that the pair had lost their gear in a shipwreck earlier in 1872. She concluded that the circumstances, time frame, and motive did not connect any dots, therefore she rules it out. After going through the ludicrous and possible and debunking each of them, she moved on to what might have happened. A captain is very unlikely to order his crew to abandon a perfectly fit and seaworthy ship for no apparent reason. And to get another perspective on this, McGregor interviewed Phil Richardson, a physical oceanographer in Massachusetts. He says that the ship wasn't flooded or horribly damaged, and remarked that the crew who salvaged her did so with virtually no problems barring less than favorable weather that may have just slowed them down and nothing more. He also noted that there was no report of imminent danger in the logs, and that threats on the ocean usually happen very fast, so evacuating the ship before something happened was highly unlikely and would leave some evidence. One of the most likely causes was that maybe Captain Briggs went mad and did something to his crew one by one to make it look like an unexplained occurrence. The problem was, after interviewing his descendants in his hometown of Mario, Massachusetts, it was discovered that he was well respected in social circles and there were no clues as to if he had an undiagnosed psychological problem and he had no history of acting irrational, which was further confirmed by his seven-year-old son, Arthur Briggs, that he left behind at the time so he could attend school. McGregor figured that she could determine the precise spot from which Briggs, his family and crew abandoned ship, she might be able to shed light on why. She knew from the transcriptions of the Mary Celeste's log slate, where notations were made before they were transcribed into the log, that the ship was six miles from and within sight of the Azores island of Santa Maria on November 25th, and she knew from the testimony of the De Gracia crew that ten days later, the ship was some 400 miles east of the island. McGregor asked physical oceanographer Richardson to work backward and create a path between these two points. Richardson said he would need water temperatures, wind speeds, and wind directions at the time, all data that McGregor found in the International Comprehensive Ocean Atmosphere Dataset, which stores global marine information from 1784 to 2007 and is used to study climate change. She, her yachtsman husband Scott, and Richardson drew on the data to determine whether the Mary Celeste could have drifted from its recorded location on November 25th, where the De Gracia crew reported finding it on December 5th. Their conclusion was that yes, it could have, even without a crew to sail it, was most likely abandoned on the morning of November 25th and was hundreds of miles from the nearest landmass, which was Santa Maria. But, based on the provisions and small crew, it seemed incredibly unlikely that it was due to running out of food and water. The big question then is why? Based on the logs being lost in 1885, only the data they calculated could be used to pinpoint their last known position, but as far as they could figure, there was nothing inherently off about the last five days of the ship's voyage. After all their findings, research, and expert help, their final conclusion was that Briggs was actually 120 miles west of where he thought he was, probably because of an inaccurate chronometer. By the captain's calculations, he should have sighted land three days earlier than he did. 
a piece of crucial information based off of Magistrate Sully Flood's notes that the day before Briggs reached the Azores, he changed course and headed north of Santa Maria Island, perhaps seeking haven. Even with a final log stating that he had encountered rough winds and choppy waters, McGregor firmly believes that was not enough to get an abandoned ship order, even with a faulty chronometer. But she learned one final thing that may have led to one of the pumps failing. On its previous voyage, it was hauling coal and had to be refitted and all the dust and debris could have led to the malfunction leading to it being disassembled by crew. This may have led Briggs to figure that his ship was taking on water and, with no land in sight, may have issued the order not knowing if his ship would make the rest of the trek. This of course opens up avenues into more and more questions and a never-ending labyrinth of inquiries that may never be solved. Today, McGregor still won't leave the mystery alone, and continues to search for something more concrete. Many other amateur detectives have joined the quest, with some building on her findings, coming to their own wild conclusions. A few plausible, while others are so far-fetched that it may as well not be entertained at all. Life on the high seas tend to bring it with a sense of chaotic poetry and a sense of freedom for those that dare to brave the treacherous, unforgiving mass that the cruel mistress of water brings. If you're lucky, you won't incur her wrath, and you will merely get a taste of her beauty. If you're unlucky, you'll feel the full, unbridled fury of an ancient woman scorned that takes no prisoners and releases none that she has already claimed. And so we come at last to the end of part one in this group of stories in which the globe snatched what it wanted from humanity, leaving behind a swath of bad memories, broken dreams, or any hope of safe returns. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed narrating. Stay tuned on May 1st for part 2, where I take on some of the most sought-after objects and anomalies that have created turmoil and intrigue from inquiring individuals. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at the Nightcap Nebula Pod and be on the lookout for upcoming merchandise announcements. You can listen to all my segments on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Be sure to like, comment, and rate my program as it greatly helps my exposure. Until next time, be safe and stay curious.